The scripture reading today is from 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 1 till 5. And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not implausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in wisdom of men, but in the power of God. The next one is Romans first, chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live. By faith. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. Would you pray with me again? Let's pray. Oh God, we uh, now pause and do something which may strike many of us as strange to um, spend the next several minutes thinking about your word. But God, I pray that as we now pay attention to your word, that you would pay attention to us, that you would help us to see Jesus. We pray in his name. Amen. Well, this morning we are thinking about the power of the cross, and when I think about power, as I was thinking about power this week, I was remembering something that happened, it was about five years ago. Um, our, my parents and uh, our extended family went to Hawaii for uh, Thanksgiving. And five years ago, my wife and I, uh, most of you know, have four kids. So five years ago, my oldest son would have been 10. My daughter would have been uh, four. So traveling, I mean, Hawaii is great, but getting there with four small children is not so great. And... Um, uh, we were living in Orange County at the time, and we had to drive up to LAX with, you know, the kids at that age, they're small people, but they travel with lots and lots of stuff. And so we had like 87 bags to get on the plane, and we had to find the off-site parking place and get all of the kids and stuff on the shuttle and to the airport and through security and onto the plane. And we think, okay, as soon as we get them onto the plane, we're going to sit down. And every plane now has like an iPad in front of the kid's face. And so at least on the flight, they'll have a screen to distract them. And we take off, and two of my kids' screens stop working immediately which is probably the worst possible number of screens to stop working because if they all stopped working, it would at least be fair, but it's not remotely fair. And so the plane ride was, um, you know, a nightmare. <laughs> and by the time we land in Hawaii, I think we'd been traveling for about three months. 
And uh, my nerves are just shot at this point. And we've got to pick up a rental car and still drive about an hour to the place where we're staying. And so I get in the shuttle and we all take the four kids and 87 pieces of luggage to the rental car place and we wait in the longest line in the world and we finally get the keys for the rental car and we go out and we buckle all the car seats into the rental car. And, um, and I don't know how you deal with stress, but I, I kind of get to the point where when I'm stressed, I just hone in on really minute details. And so you know at the rental car place when they give you the thing where you're supposed to check to see if there's any damage to the car? And if, you don't, if there's damage, they're going to charge you for it. And so I'm going around in like m- meticulous detail looking for every scratch on this rental car because I'm not going to let them get the best of me. And... <laughs> I'm just, I'm super stressed at this point. And finally, I get in the car, and it's Hawaii in the fall, it's hot and it's humid, and I get in the car, and the air conditioning is blowing out like hot, humid air. And I think, this is ridiculous, so the the AC isn't working in this car. So I go back inside, and I tell the people inside, the car, the the AC isn't working, and we're going to have to get a new car. So they get me keys to a different car. We go out. It's the car. Exactly, it's an identical car that's parked next to the car. So we move all the kids, all the bags, go do the inspection of the bodywork again, and I get in the car, and the AC is blowing out hot, humid air. And at this point, it occurs to me, that it's really unlikely that there are two identical cars parked next to each other that both have broken air conditioning units. And so I go in, but I can't figure out what's going on. I go in and I get the the mechanic to come out and he looks at the car and and I have one of those key fobs. And, And he says, sir, you have this, the car's fine, you just have to push the power button. And it was the first time I had ever driven a car where you don't stick the key in and turn it. And because the key was in my pocket, I didn't realize that it kind of like the lights come on and the AC starts blowing. But if you don't push the power button, it's not going to go anywhere. It's not going to (laughs) function. It's not going to work. Incidentally, a couple of years later, I bought a car from somebody in our church and they said, you just need to be careful because it has that push button that you don't know how to use. So. <laughs> I couldn't figure it out, but you have to push the button. It won't work unless you turn on the power. When we talk about the cross, we're talking about the power of God. And Paul is telling us in uh, 1 Corinthians 2 and in Romans 1 that the cross is about the power of God, and and he's telling us how to turn on the power. In this series that we began last week, we're we're talking about the scandal of the cross as we move towards um, Good Friday and Easter. We're thinking about the the cross and its meaning and the, and the centrality of the cross in the Christian life. And so we're looking at different aspects of the cross of Jesus so we can understand more fully what the cross means and so that we can more fully live lives that are shaped by the cross. And so last week we began by talking about the foolishness of the cross. And we're holding on to that as we, as we talk this week about the power of the cross. I think it would be easy to think that the foolishness of the cross and the power of the cross are opposed to one another, but they're actually, they go hand in hand. 
And there, there are really two places in um, the New Testament where the Apostle Paul talks about the power of the cross, and that's why we're looking at two passages this morning. But one of the things I was struck by this week as I was uh, studying these passages is that um, the, the first passage, historically, Paul would have written 1 Corinthians first and Romans later. And uh, in, in the 1 Corinthians 2 passage, really what he's talking about is the way that we talk about the cross, the way that the, that the message of the cross is communicated. And then in Romans 1, he's talking about the content of the cross, and the, the communication and the content of the cross both speak to the power of the cross. And what, what he's saying um, is that it is possible to embrace the cross but to deny the power. Like me trying to get this perfectly functional car to work without turning the power on. It's possible to believe things that are you know, good and true and biblical and orthodox about the cross of Jesus, but to live in a way that denies the power of the cross. And that's a tragedy for both, both Christians and for those who don't claim to be followers of Jesus. But what the, what the Bible lays out for us is the reality that the power of God to transform human lives is not displayed ultimately in God's act um, as creator, as sustainer, but it's, it's most fully displayed in his work as redeemer. And Paul is telling us that if we will experience the power of the cross, we must embrace both the message of the cross, but also the methodology of the cross. So first, I want to look with you at the, these verses from 1 Corinthians 2, where he talks about the power of the cross. The first two verses there again, he says, I, when I came to you, that is Paul was the founding pastor of the church in Corinth. So he says, when I came to you, brothers and sisters in Christ, I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or with wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I didn't come with words of eloquent wisdom, but talking about the power of a crucified Savior. And what Paul is telling us here is that a crucified Savior can be communicated in divine power only by crucified messengers. It is possible to talk about the power of the cross in a way that empties the cross of its power. The context in Corinth is that, um, as I mentioned, Paul uh, was the founding pastor of the church in Corinth. If you, are, if you read through the book of Acts, um, you see, Paul takes three missionary journeys in the book of Acts, and in Acts chapter 18, on his second missionary journey, he comes to Corinth, and he spent about 18 months there. It's the place where Paul uh, made tents and sold them in order to make a living. And he spent 18 months there telling people about Jesus founding this church, and then he moved on, and after Paul left, deep divisions captured the church in Corinth. And he says this in chapter 1, of this, this letter. So, so after he's moved on, Paul now writes a letter back to this church that he pastored in the past. And um, he, he says in chapter one, he talks about these divisions and he, he says, some of you follow Paul and some follow Apollos, some follow Cephas, which is Peter, uh, and some say we follow Christ. And um, the, the really, you know, the really uh, spiritual people that, that Jesus juked them. We don't follow these celebrity preachers. We follow Jesus. 
Um, there were deep divisions in the church here because everybody had their favorite pastor, which is ironic because we think of uh, celebrity kind of Christians as being a modern phenomenon, but Paul was dealing with it in the first uh, 25 years after, after the death of Christ. Uh, Ray Ortland, who actually is a celebrity pastor, uh, says this in, a, in his commentary on this passage. He says, the Corinthian church was ripping itself apart with popularity contests for their favorite preachers. Paul, Apollos, Peter, some claimed Christ alone, but not because they were so spiritual. The implication was, I'm following Christ and you are not. The root of it all was pride. The Corinthians were sermon connoisseurs critiquing their preachers as entertainers rather than critiquing themselves as Christians. So does that connect at all for us? Uh, we live in an age of celebrity Christians. You know, there's, I think there's a blog that, that um, talks about the sneakers that pastors wear. Uh, <laughs> uh, divisions in, in, in the church in Corinth over I follow Paul or I follow Paulus are basically the same thing as people in our day saying, well, I listen to uh, Rick Warren or I listen to John MacArthur or I listen to Andy Stanley or I listen to Tim Keller. I had to include um, myself in there. I listen to Tim Keller. <laughs> but Paul's whole point is that you can't play that game without losing, without emptying the gospel of its power. And that's exactly what's happening in the contemporary church. Uh, in, a, in a strange way, when we say, you know, this is the, the, the celebrity pastor that I am drawn to, what we're doing is we're turning uh, preaching about the cross of Jesus into a, a very weird form of entertainment. And we think that the goal of Christianity is to go to church and listen to a sermon when the sermon is really a means of exalting the glory of Christ demonstrated on the cross so that we might be more conformed to his image. And the world looks at us and says, you know, you could go to movies that have a lot higher production value than the average church and are far more entertaining. Listening to sermons is a very strange form of entertainment. And it empties the cross of its power. And so Paul reminds the church that when he came to them, he didn't try to wow them or impress them with words. Uh, Greek culture, I think I mentioned this last week, but Greek culture um, at this point was very centered around uh, philosophy and logic and ideas and, um, and the practice of rhetoric. And crowds would just gather to listen to ideas. Paul does this in Acts 17. He had, he had just been in... in um, in, in Athens and where he engages with the philosophers there. Uh, but he says when he came to Corinth, where they were obsessed with rhetoric, he says, I just didn't play that game at all. He says he came and he gave them simple, a simple, straightforward message. A simple message, not necessarily an easy one, but one that is clear and straightforward. Paul knew the difference between talking about the power of God and showing off. And there is absolutely a form of Christianity that's more about showing off than it is about resting in the saving power of a crucified Savior. If our Christianity is leading to boasting, if it leads us to judging outsiders, it's a Christianity that is devoid of power even when the substance of what we're saying is accurate. A, there's, a, there's a Christianity that can draw a crowd but does not actually produce disciples who engage the world 
in a way that is consistent with the crucified Messiah who calls them. And that's a Christianity without power. You know, it may be human power, it may be power that, that looks impressive, but it will fade. Uh, you know, we've seen this, it seems like, in the last several years. It's funny, I'm not, I'm not that old, but I'm old enough to start thinking about the fact that I can remember lots of different things happening in my life. And I can think of two different, very prominent churches and ministries and leaders in my lifetime who, you know, at a certain point you kind of thought like, this is the pinnacle and the gold standard and one of those churches doesn't even exist and another is greatly diminished. You know, there are, there are these places that look very impressive for a time. There's all sorts of excitement and maybe for 10 or 15 years it looks like something incredible is happening. But in the whole scheme of things, it's just a, it's just a flash in the pan. And Paul says that that approach to the gospel empties the cross of its power. It's interesting, Paul says uh, that he, he, he came deciding to know nothing but Jesus Christ and him crucified because um, Paul was not a simpleton. Um, he had one of the great minds of the ancient world. And before he met Jesus, Paul says in Galatians 1, he, he says, I was advancing in Judaism far beyond my peers. What he's saying is he was kind of the hot up-and-coming religious teacher in that time. His, his social media you know, following was, was growing. Uh, everybody was very excited about what he was going to become. And then he met Jesus, and he says in verse 3 through 5, he says, I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling, and my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom. This is this rhetoric that the Corinthians loved, but he said, but I was with you in a demonstration of the spirit and of power. Why? So that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. He is saying, I could either leave you amazed with Jesus, or I could leave you amazed with me, but I can't do both at the same time. In short, Christianity that is orthodox in its content but denies the power of the cross is, the one, is one in which the power of the cross is used to some other means. You know, there's a way to present the gospel that leaves the listener saying, wow, that person really knows a lot. I could never remember all of that. Or um, I can remember um, as a college student and I was, um, had my first... And I was kind of on this track towards ministry, and I had an internship at a church. And there was a, there was a church in the area where everybody's talking about this, this pastor who was a great speaker. And we went to hear him one Monday night. And I remember coming away and saying, um, that guy is way too good of a speaker for his own good. He was hilarious. <laughs> and everybody looked at me and said, what do you mean he's too good of a speaker for his own good? Well, I came away thinking about how funny he was. You know, we, we, there, there's a way of talking about the gospel that, that leaves people saying, wow, that person is really impressive. And it empties the cross of its power. Several years ago, um, our family was uh, part of planting a church in South Orange County, and I had a coach named Doug who um, I worked with for several years, and Doug would call me every week or two and 
um, like try to talk me off the ledge, basically. And um, Doug, one day we were talking on the phone, and I remember Doug telling me about his own experience uh, several years earlier when he and his wife uh, were planting a church in San Diego. And he, he, he's saying, you know, there's just this immense sense of pressure when you're trying to start a new church and when you're the pastor who's doing that. And he, he, he's, he's talking about, like, it, it feels like you have to be everything to everyone. And every Sunday you're hoping that more people are going to show up. And sometimes they do, but then they don't come back. And you're just kind of riding the ups and downs of that whole thing. And it can just be absolutely exhausting. And, um, and Doug was telling me that a couple of years into when, when they were starting this church, uh, he was, you know, just riding those ups and downs and he's exhausted and he got through Easter and, you know, Easter sometimes feels like the Super Bowl for pastors where you put all this energy into it. And the week after Easter is just, you know, deflating. And um, Doug and his wife had been invited to a retreat at a Christian camp and uh, it was pretty, pretty smart, actually. This, this camp said, we're going to invite pastors the week after Easter, and we're just going to encourage them. And Doug says, I have no idea what was said that week, except the speaker said this, this is your job. It's to bring people to Jesus and then to leave them there. And, uh, and Doug, he would call me every week and say, Bryce, it's your job to bring people to Jesus and then walk away. And, you know, that's a lot harder than it sounds. <laughs> because sometimes when you bring people to Jesus and then you start to walk away, people don't like that. <laughs> and if you care about people, you want to jump in and try to fix things. But the reality is that Jesus is the only hero. And Jesus is the only one who can fix us. But often our temptation is to get in the way we try to smooth everything out because we want to be liked when what people really need is to go and wrestle with Jesus. Or what we want is to be able to hand somebody a book and say, if you read this, it'll answer all of your questions. And what people really need is Jesus and the power of the cross. And I'm not against books. I kind of just finished writing one, so I, I, you know, I believe and I read books all the time. But what Paul is warning us against is undermining the power of Christ's work on the cross while saying things that are true but employing a methodology that subtly suggests that you need something more than just Jesus Christ and him crucified. And we live in this time where we have sophisticated solutions to all of life's problems. And so our temptation is to present Christianity as, uh, to people as sort of like a neatly packaged thing. And it empties the cross of its power because life is not a neatly packaged thing where you can drop in like a gospel vitamin and solve people's problems. And when we encounter the real mess of life, we haven't given people a Jesus that is, capable, that is bigger than that mess. And so, this is kind of counterintuitive, but the truth in what Paul's saying here is that the power of God shines most brightly when we communicate the message of the cross simply. Um, I, I mentioned this a couple of weeks ago, and some of us have talked about this in different conversations, but 
um, there, there was this, uh, some people were calling it a revival that was happening at Asbury University in Kentucky. Um, and I, I'm not mentioning this really to like, <laughs> I have no real interest in validating or questioning what, what's happening there. But I was listening to a podcast um, this last week where, where um, Mark Sayers, who's a pastor I listen to from time to time, uh, was just talking about the simplicity of what the way that um, people were describing what was happening at this revival, awakening, where college students, what's happening is college students are reading the Bible and praying and confessing their sins and singing you know, simple songs together, and yet the thing that kept, people kept saying over and over again was how powerful it was. That there was something really simple happening, but that was what was really powerful. But um, I didn't know this, this, listening to Mark Sayers in his podcast last week, he said apparently Fox News reached out to the people who were like the leaders of this revival at Asbury. And Fox News wanted to come with their cameras and, and do this segment on what was happening, and they just said, no, thank you. And uh, the producer from Fox News, uh, his response was, um, he said, okay, that's impressive. He says, the only time when people say no to cameras is when they either don't need or don't want publicity. And um, what was happening there at, at, the, at Asbury was that they were actually telling people, like, put your phones away. Don't live stream this on Facebook. Um, they had no need of, of the publicity and the power and the technology. And then that was contrasted with, and again, I'm not saying this is awful or anything, but I don't know if you have seen this, um, this campaign called He Gets Us. There was a, uh, an, uh, a commercial on the, the Super Bowl uh, for this He Gets Us campaign, and apparently this is a thing where, I don't know who's behind this, but... <clears throat> This group is trying to spend a billion dollars in the next three years, um, and they, they've said that their goal is to make Jesus look relevant again. And again, I'm not saying that's evil and that, I mean, God can do whatever he wants with that, but I think it's fascinating to compare this, like, on one hand, when people are saying the power of God is being manifest here, and they're saying no to publicity, and they spent zero dollars um, promoting it. To contrast that with an approach that says we're going to spend a billion dollars to try to make Jesus look good again. And in some ways, it just feels kind of trivial. And we're living in a world where um, research is emerging that technology that we thought you know, the, the 20th century in some ways held out this promise that technology is going to solve all human problems. And what we're now discovering is that actually technology is creating a lot of our problems. And that we're raising a generation uh, that is dealing with unprecedented levels of anxiety and depression precisely because of the role of technology in their lives. And God in his kindness comes to us in simplicity. And there's actually great power in the cross. And the challenge, I think, for us is to point people to the cross and then just get out of the way. That's what Paul's saying in 1 Corinthians 2. But the second thing that I want to highlight here for us, and this is in the Romans 1, uh, verses 16 and 17, 
a passage is, is, is not just the communication, but the content, the content of the gospel, the content of the power of the cross. Understanding the importance of our, of our manner of communication is vital, but understanding the content of the message is essential as well. Uh, in 1 Corinthians, Paul has been uh, talking about what is essential for the Corinthians to know about the gospel, to confront their worldly approach to faith in the way that they they communicate the gospel. In, First Corinthians, in Romans 1, Paul points us once again to the gospel, and here he talks about the substance of the gospel, or what he calls the word of the cross. And the first thing that um, you might notice here is that Paul begins by saying, I am not ashamed of the gospel, uh, which we saw last week. The word of the cross will always look like foolishness in the eyes of the world, and the messengers of the gospel, the messengers of the cross will always look foolish. But Paul says he's not ashamed of the foolishness of the cross. And the reason why, he says, is because the cross is the very power of God. Which is a startling statement if, if we believe what the Bible says about who God is. That out of the, the, the myriad ways that God has demonstrated his power in creation and in, in human history... That, that what Paul wants to highlight for us is that the power of God is demonstrated through the cross. So how do we see the power of God demonstrated through the cross? Well, the first thing that we see kind of comes out in, in this passage is that um, we see the power of God through the gospel. And we, we have to remember that the word gospel, uh, euangelion is the Greek word, the you means good, and and angelion, you hear the word angel in there, and an, and an angel is a herald. So it's the, the, the gospel is somebody who is, t- the, the gospel is good news. Um, what we see is that the power of the cross, we see that the power of the cross uh, shines forth in the reality that the cross is, is good news. It's something that is being proclaimed to us. It's good news in, in distinction from being good advice. In other words, the, the, the cross is about something that God has done. It is not about something that we must do. And this is really powerful because most people um, can assume that the message of Christianity is all about you know, being a good person, being a nice person, about how to get better, about how, how to live a, a good life. It's just about moral advice. If you were to ask most people living in the United States today, what is the essential message of Christianity? They, they would tell you that Christianity is about being a good person. And there's different flavors of that. For some people, it's, it's, you know, it's being nice. It's believing the right things about society. It's voting a certain way. But the, the power of the cross consists in the reality that it is news about what God has done. It is not advice about what we need to do. It's actually God saying, you know, you've, you've done enough. <laughs> you've, you've made a mess of things, and now I've come to address this mess. And the second thing that we see here about the power of the cross is that Paul says it's about righteousness. Now, um, verse 17, he says, for in it, meaning in the gospel or the word of the cross, in it, the righteousness of God is revealed. Now, what does that mean? Um, we don't really use the word righteousness in our um, time. Or if we do, we talk about self-righteousness, which is not 
a compliment, right? So we, we typically use the word righteous in a negative sense, but uh, what is righteousness? Well, first, it, it is the quality that God fully possesses. It is, uh, righteousness is about being a perfectly just, virtuous, loving, gracious, noble, complete. It's about lacking nothing. And when that is applied to us, righteousness is about being right with God. Uh, we know what it means to be right with another person, right? Um, you know, if I've borrowed money from you, like if I borrowed money for lunch, then I, I pay you back so that we can be right with one another. Or if, if we've offended someone uh, or they've hurt us, um, we make sure that we don't run into them because we know that we're not right with them. Or if we've broken someone's trust and we want to know what, what do I have to do to make this right with you? Uh, so we know how that plays out in our present world. Um, how do we seek righteousness? Well, there, there are basically two approaches. There's the religious approach to righteousness and the irreligious approach to righteousness. And the, the religious person feels this uh, impulse to perform or to somehow secure righteousness through their own efforts. And the irreligious impulse is to say, the problem with the world is that you think there is such a thing as righteousness. If you just get rid of that category, everything gets better. But the problem is that all of us feel this internal impulse towards uh, seeking our own righteousness. But here's where the power comes in. What Paul is saying in Romans 1 is that the power of the cross is seen in Jesus' death on the cross being the means by which God makes us righteous. So the power of the cross is seen in that it is the righteousness of God is being revealed, but the righteousness of God is being given to human beings, to those who are unrighteous. The gospel, which is the essential message of the scriptures, is the announcement that God in the person of Jesus has come to the, into the world to make us right with himself. It's not about what we must do to be right with him. It's the announcement that God has already made us right in Christ. But to fully appreciate the power and the beauty of the cross, we have to uh, see that the cross gives us a righteousness that is not something that we've earned on our own. It's a righteousness that comes from outside of ourselves. Uh, Martin Luther talked about the alien righteousness of, uh, that, that is given to Christians. He didn't mean the, the righteousness of little green men. He, he, you know, he's talking about the, the, the alien righteousness that is, that is it's alien because it's outside of our uh, of ourselves, is, uh, outside of our own being. It comes from somebody other than ourselves. The Bible tells us that we had rejected God, that we turned his, our backs on him, we, we cosmically shamed God, and we kicked him to the curb. And God's response was to send Jesus, God himself, leaving the riches of heaven to come and find us. The message of the cross is that Jesus, who had lived a perfectly righteous life, embraced the shame of our treason and endured the power of sin that had captured us and fully paid the debt that our uh, sin had charged up to the max on the credit card of life. He paid it in full. That's what he does on the cross. And in so doing, he earns a perfect record of righteousness and he gives us his perfect record of righteousness on the cross. 
Jesus in his perfection earns the righteousness of God. And then on the cross, he exchanges places. He takes our sin. He gives us his perfection. The gospel's good news is that his record can be yours when you believe in him and when you put your faith in him and what he has done for you. The problem I think that we face now in the American church is that we don't really believe this. I mean, when somebody stands up and says this in a church on Sunday morning, we believe it. But in practice, we have a a truncated view of the gospel. When um, American Christians are surveyed about what they believe, roughly half of people who call themselves Christians believe that Jesus died on the, um, roughly half who who claim to be Christians believe that we have to um, produce our own righteousness and the Bible is a list of rules that tell us how to produce a virtuous, righteous life. And the result of that sort of approach is that we feel overwhelmed as we try to obey God, and then we just give up and we say he can't really mean what he actually says. So half of people who call themselves Christians believe that they're just needing to try a little bit harder. The other half of professing Christians believe that Jesus died on the cross to pay for their sins and settle their debt, which is good, but it's not the full story. Because if Jesus died on the cross to pay for your sins and settle your debt, then you are back at zero. And so then you are trying still to earn a positive record of righteousness. But Jesus didn't just die on the cross to pay for your sins. Yes, he did that. Let me be clear. Jesus died on the cross to pay for your sins. But on the cross, he's not just taking your sin from you. He's giving you his righteousness in exchange. So that when God looks at you, he treats you like you are the son who perfectly earned that righteousness. On the cross, the very righteousness of God, which Jesus earned in his perfect life, is given to you. That's the power of the cross. And that's why the cross alone truly has the power to transform our lives. So as we kind of wrap up here, I want to I share with you a story of what that looks like in action. And I'm going to warn you that this is a little shocking, and, um, but the power of the cross is shocking. Um, so you may have heard so, uh, several years ago, th- there was the big story in the news about Larry Nasser, who was the, um, uh, co- uh, the, the team doctor for the U.S. women's gymnastics team, who was convicted of abusing dozens or maybe hundreds of young girls and young women in his care. That's all I'm going to I know some of you have kids. That's all. I'm not going to be more graphic than that. But this was awful, heinous, evil acts. And um, this first came to light when a, a woman named Rachel Den Hollander uh, began speaking out. She was the first person to go to the police. And Rachel Den Hollander has, uh, she's a a lawyer, but she's written a book now and has kind of become an advocate for for victims. And um, she's also a Christian. And at the sentencing phase of Larry Nassar's trial, the judge um, invited victims who wanted to, to come and to speak to this man who had 
abused them. And this is what Rachel Denhollander said. She, she looked at this man and she said this. She said, Larry, should you ever reach the point of truly facing what you have done, the guilt will be crushing. And that is what makes the gospel of Christ so sweet. Because it extends grace and hope and mercy where none should be found. And it will be there for you. I pray that you experience the soul-crushing weight of guilt so that you may someday experience true repentance and true forgiveness from God, which you need far more than forgiveness from me, though I grant you that as well. That's what the power of the cross looks like. What would enable a young woman to look at that man and be so brutally honest and so hopeful at the same time. It's only the power of the cross. The gospel is the power of God made visible on the cross through which Jesus exchanges places with us. He takes our sin and gives us his perfection. The cross alone has the power to transform us. So we respond by believing the gospel. It's good news, but it has to be acknowledged as good. And we respond by bearing witness to the power of the cross in a way that doesn't undermine the message. Would you pray with me? God, we thank you that in your perfect wisdom, you make yourself known to us in a way that um, is counterintuitive and yet so much better than we could have asked for. That when we rebelled against you and divorced you and said we didn't want to have anything to do with you, you didn't fold your arms and pout, you didn't uh, wipe us out but you come to us powerfully taking upon yourself in Christ the, pay, the, the, the price of our rejection and giving us instead his perfection. God, we pray that you would uh, so um, weave the message of the cross into our beings that we would live as people whose instincts um, are to show mercy like you have shown mercy. To embrace sacrifice in order to demonstrate love. God, would you do that in us? We can't do that in ourselves, but you are more than able. And so we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.